This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Bob Lane. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. I am your host. Actually, I am your co-host today. More about that in a few minutes. But I am, for the moment, your host, Bob Lane. I'm an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School. And my day job is I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer as a partner at the law firm of Stevens & Lee. We're live noon at noon Eastern every Friday, followed by Behind the Markets at 1 p.m. Eastern. As always, you can access past shows via our on-demand feature. If you're listening between 12 noon and 1 p.m. Eastern on Friday, March 30th, number one, happy Good Friday and happy Passover and happy other holidays. Uh, but if you're listening on Friday, March 30th, we're here live in the studio for your questions. So please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Of course, if you're listening at any other time or day, Please email your questions and comments to businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and I'll be happy to address them on my next show. So again, if you have a question or you want to join our conversation or share an experience during today's discussion, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I know we have competition on Twitter, but Twitter at Biz Radio 111. So, today, my guest, who is after today no longer a guest, and that's what I meant by my co-host, is um, honored to announce that Zach Scheinberg is joining the Real Estate Hour as our new host and will be part of our standard rotating line of Sam Chandon and myself, Bob Lane. Uh, Zach is the managing partner of Wind Raven, a privately held real estate investment and development company based in New York. But even more importantly, Zach is a, a double graduate of the Wharton School, undergraduate and uh, MBA, and has a law degree and has been a practicing lawyer as well. So he brings more talent, intelligence, and experience uh, to this show than uh, all the rest of us put together. Zach, welcome. I'm really glad to have you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And you were definitely overselling that. But well, I appreciate it. My listeners are used to that, so it's uh, it's it won't be a surprise. But no, I never oversell. We're going to be in uh, we're going to be in good shape, and uh, we're going to be. Although I, I we are going to I'm not going to give much of your background. I'm going to let you do it because I just learned relatively recently that while at ten years old I was interested in becoming Spider Man when I grew up, right, or fireman, or maybe even an astronaut. But you at ten years old, you already knew you wanted to have your own investment real estate investment company, and you were you know I think you were probably selling bricks on the street instead of lemonade. I, I don't know. So give us give us something about your background. Sure. It was more of uh, I just wanted to start a business when I was younger, although that sounds uh, a little embarrassing now if everybody else wanted to be Superman or Spider-Man or a firefighter or an astronaut. Um, so I was, as you mentioned, I was Wharton undergrad. Um, I graduated in 2002. I worked at a real estate company for about six months after school and knowing that I was going to go back to law school. Came out of law school, practiced real estate law for a few years. Um, knowing that real estate law is, is critical in um, becoming successful on the business side. Um, so I wanted to get that experience, and I really did, I think, get a great experience seeing different aspects of uh, real estate transactional law, which was great. And, and you and, practiced at one of the premier law firms in New York, Strook, Strook & Levin, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. So yeah. I practiced for a little so over two years. You didn't and, just get a degree. You got correct. hands-on experience. Yeah. And I think, in, in my experience, I think that it, um, it definitely behooved me and was very helpful now in having practice for for a few years rather than just being in school and then jumping right into the business side of things. So, yeah. And and you'll find uh, cuz Zach's been my guest a number of times and uh, he's uh, we're, we're going to get into more of the things that he does cuz he teaches uh, he's just a wide array of experiences and he's going to tell you a little bit more about them. But um, one of the things that my regular listeners know is well I have guests 
generally, I sometimes just come solo and treat my listeners as guests, and they call in, uh, given that I'm a lawyer as well as uh, pretty uh, experienced in the real estate uh, industry and sect- various sectors. I get a lot of callers with questions about their own situations, and hopefully we'll get some today if they're interested. Uh, but you're also a lawyer, and yep. one of the things we always say uh, to our listeners is uh, that be, be wary. We will be very open and uh, help try to be helpful in giving out advice, but you can never rely on legal advice you get from either me or from Zach or from any other professional that we have as guests or hosts. Um, because anybody who would give uh, advice upon which you would rely to your uh, with any kind of stakes over the over the radio or over the phone would be uh, kind of derelict. You really have to review documents, no more facts. But we try to be helpful, and I know we will. Um, so, actually, tell us a little bit because w- w- the court, when when you and I first met is when did you and I first meet? What was the what was the role? We met when I was in business school between. Probably in 2009, uh, when I was your TA in the real estate law class. Exactly. You were my teaching assistant and probably one of the best teaching assistants Thank I you. ever had with all that background. It Thank was you. a lot of fun. And here you are many years later as uh, a guest on this show and now now coming in as a host. Yeah. So so what, you're teaching yourself, though, now as well. Yeah. So I very fortunately have the oppor- had the opportunity to teach the real estate investment and finance class at the University of Michigan Raw School of Business in Ann Arbor. Um, and I have been doing that since... January, and it's been a really incredible experience for a variety of reasons. Um, it's really interesting seeing what it's like on that side of the desk. And I can say that uh, having been in quite a bit of school, undergrad law school and business school, it seems pretty easy when a professor is doing a good job, where the professor comes in, uh, has some slides, gives some examples and talks, takes some questions and leaves. There's so much more to it than that. So it's it's really nice seeing uh, how it works from the professor side of things. And I have a much greater appreciation now for the professors that I had throughout my um, experiences in school. I just have a much greater appreciation for all the work that they put in to actually deliver a great education. It's not easy. Well, I hope some of your students and my students are listening to that right now, so. and, <laughs> and we'll have that. Um, but um, one of the things that you've developed, and we're going we're gonna to get into a lot of uh, terrific topics today. We're going to talk a, a good bit about the EV5 program. We're going to talk about uh, what's going on in also major cities around the country, you know, why some are startup hubs and others aren't, where people are attracted to, where you're going to have a lot of... Uh, uh, listeners are going to have a lot of good insights, I think, as we go forward. But but I want to touch on something else that you've done, uh, which I find really exciting and love to ex- see uh, explored here at Penn and other schools, is the uh, the, the Michigan Ross program. Um, yeah. So the uh, probably two or three years ago, um, some students, one of whom I actually randomly bumped into at an event last night. Uh, decided that they wanted to start a what effectively was a club for students who are interested in real estate to learn how the real estate investment business actually works with real money. Um, because as anybody who plays poker or does any um, game of chance or even doing something to make money knows is that it doesn't. It's not the same experience unless there's real money at stake. Right. So the students' idea was to create something of an, uh, a real estate fund, although it's not legally a fund. It's more of a club and a platform that is given money through donations to the school that they can then use to invest in real um, real estate investments. So there are a bunch of universities out there that have clubs that focus mostly, that focus exclusively on investing in publicly traded real estate securities. That's not what this is. This is they are actually putting money as limited partners into deals at the property level. Whose money is it? So the money comes from uh, donations to the general fund at the University of Michigan Ross, and the money is allocated then specifically to the fund um, at the request typically of the donors who are looking to support real estate education at the school. So that money is placed at risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I know that most for most people generally, and certainly uh, students in law schools and business <coughs> schools, um, are, uh, we're scorekeepers. I, I, you know, even, I, I think you're right. When people uh, play for real money, so if you play poker with not, no chips just for peanuts, it's not the same as for real real money. It's the same thing with investing. But on the other hand, um, you know, we play pinball for who can get the highest score, and, you know, we're all competitive, and, you know, that, that helps too. So this must make it even more so. So my, my question, I'm leading up to, to a question of, you know, how, when you're, the, the students in this club and have this fund, when they lose money, mm-hmm. what, what, what kind of reaction do they have? So without getting into uh, too many of the specifics, because there are confidentialities issue, issues around some yeah. of the deals. So there are a couple of deals that um, that the students invested a number of years ago that did not are not meeting the projections that were originally underwritten when the deals were looked at. 
so the fund or the fund and when I'm, I'm saying fund I don't mean an actual investment right. fund just fund as a club right. has an has an advisory board made up of very prominent people in the real estate industry all of whom are Michigan graduates um, and they also serve as the investment committee so we recently had our fall advisory board meeting and investment committee meeting and members of the advisory board had some very pointed words about a couple of the deals. And it, it is not the fault of the students in the fund now because they're not the ones who originally had invested in these ah. specific deals. But that said, it's their fund now, and they have to own it. So they need to explain what's going on, and they need to defend the investments. Mm-hmm. Or if they can't, explain what the lessons learned are learned are in order, in order to uh, avoid those same type of um, issues in the future. So it's, it's been a great learning experience for them, and they understand that deals don't always work. And they don't always meet, under, or they never meet the actual underwriting. But sometimes they're wildly off from the underwriting. That's a fabulous experience. And what a, it's a great program. I mean, you've been telling me about it over time. Um, I, I just want to learn more and more about it. Uh, so, uh, and you just made a, a point that the students who are, so it's a two-year program? So the it? uh, it's a joint club of uh, the undergrads and MBA students. So each year they... Um, no, I meant the, the Michigan Ross School of Business. Oh, the MBA program is two years, and then the undergrad years. program is four years. Yeah. So if you're if you're there just for the MBA program, mm-hmm. right, so you're only going to have at best two years sure. experience with the fund, and right. some of these projects are many years. Yeah, most, yeah most, most sponsors will hold assets for longer than two years, but it very much reflects the way that the industry works for real, because if you're an acquisitions guy at a fund in, in any city... You do deals two years from now, you might not work there anymore. So, so I really would have a lot of sympathy for those students who uh, come in, came in in like like twenty oh nine, and something was purchased in twenty oh seven, and then it's underwater yep. by twenty oh nine, with no fault of anybody's, but the drastic downturn in the economy then. Yeah. So fortunately, uh, this was only established in two thousand fifteen, so oh, they okay, didn't have good. to do that. But eventually, that is going to happen. There's no question that's going to happen, and they're going to have to explain to the investment committee. Um, who are, again, very prominent luminaries in the real estate business around the country. What went wrong, what they did wrong, how to avoid it in the future, and it's not, it's not the easiest conversation to have. Well, I want to, uh, before we move on to another topic, I just want to uh, welcome our new listeners who have come in at the, uh, since the start of the hour. You're listening to Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 111, on, uh, and this is the Real Estate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Lane, an adjunct professor the law, an adjunct professor at the Wharton School teaching real estate law and transactions by night and by day. I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer at the law firm of Stevens and Lee. And our guest and now co-host Zach Scheinberg uh, is the managing director of the, the Raven Wind Fund, a privately held real estate investment and development company. Uh, we're talking about some of the things that are going to we're going to learn about him as you get to know your new host, uh, who's going to join our rotation, uh, as well as some other topics uh, today, such as uh, EB-5 and what's going on in hub cities, and maybe we'll touch on a couple of uh, breaking news kind of things, uh, because anything breaking news in real estate goes over years, not not, not minutes, so <laughs> we'll, we'll come to that. And, of course, if you want to uh, join, if you're listening on Friday, March 30th, again, happy Good Friday and happy Passover and happy other holidays that people may celebrate, but if you're listening on March 30th, we're live in the studio for your call, so please join our conversation at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And if you're listening at any other time or day, feel free to email your questions at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'll be happy to address them on my next show, or Zach will, or by uh, by email. Um, so let's let's talk about some of the projects, both that the Michigan Ross Fund, to the extent that you can, as yep. well as some that you've you've worked on. You've worked on a lot of uh, very diverse and, and exciting projects, and Actually, maybe some of our listeners will have some questions about those or uh, have similar projects they have interest in. Sure. So one of the um, one of the things that the students in the in the what's called the Ross Real Estate Fund um, have to do is they have to or had to do at the beginning of the year is come up with an investment thesis, which we were calling the master investment thesis. And the idea was to figure out what they want to invest in and why. Like any fund that would go out to the market, <clears throat> excuse me, to raise capital. They need to explain to investors what they're going to invest in, what the returns are going to be, um, what profitability is going to look like, how they're going to source deals. So the students went through this process, and they decided that they wanted to focus on uh, value-add, core plus value-add, multifamily, uh, and office, and some light industrial in the Midwest. 
And the idea with the Midwest was because Ross is located in Ann Arbor, they wanted to make sure that they could drive to or quickly get to the property so that they could actually see them and kick the bricks and just make sure they exist and meet with the sponsors. So that was largely what they were focused on, returns, um, uh, yields probably in the high single digits, IRRs probably mid-teens, and those were the types of deals that they started to go and look at. And what they found was that sourcing is not that easy. So in any for anybody who's in the real estate investment business, sourcing is particularly challenging, especially when there are a lot of other smart people in places like New York and L.A. and Chicago and Miami who are looking at all the potential deals that are out there. It's hard to source deals, which they found. Um, but they also spent a lot of time meeting alumni who work in the business. Uh, and now, by, they, by saying sourcing deals, I realize that some of our listeners are less involved in the sector. What, what do you mean by sourcing a deal? Because some may not sure. understand that term. Yeah. Uh, just going out and finding potential target properties to buy. So researching them, finding them, mm-hmm. you know, finding the, the, the source. Right. Yeah. So it's challenging for professionals who are working doing this full time. And I would say even more challenging for students who are doing this part time who don't have the same kind of experience. So one of the things that they decided to do very intelligently was leverage the Ross and Michigan network because there are a lot of people in the business who not only are, are alums of Michigan, but who have a very strong affinity for Michigan and want to help students, especially with the educational process. So they've been very forthcoming with a lot of the alums that they have met. So uh, the fund, the Ross Real Estate Fund, has been able to source a bunch of deals, potential investments from these alums who want to help with the ed- educational process and show them deals. Now, are these are these stabilized assets that they're buying? Um, by stabilized assets, uh, listeners, we, we mean... Uh, in real estate, uh, it could be an office building, an apartment building, it could be a retail center that's already developed, already has tenants, it's stable, and it's producing uh, net operating income of a certain amount of money. And the way value is uh, determined typically uh, in the industry uh, for those kind of income-producing properties is by capitalizing the net income, Mm -hmm. by a reverse mathematics of saying, okay, if you were investing a certain amount of money, uh, what kind of return on that would you want? And if it's very liquid and safe like a treasury bond, it's going to be a very low return. If it's uh, illiquid uh, and a little less safe than that, but still very stable like real estate, it's going to be a higher return. And if it's development risk, like you're building something and you got to get tenants, it's going to be very risky and very illiquid. You're going to want a much higher return. So you were talking about returns that were in the high single digits. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm guessing that that means these are stabilized assets just from that information. Yeah, stabilized, core plus, those kind of assets, because they, given the nature of the fund and the experience of the students, it would be difficult for them to invest in real estate development projects. There's just too many other elements involved and and too many other... um, things that you need to focus on in order to help successfully execute it when you're, for a developer to execute it. Um, so you got to be more careful investing in that type of thing. So it's it's easier to be a limited partner in a deal that already has cash flow. Right. And, and this is going to be a segue or a foundation for our talking about some of the projects that you do, mm-hmm. that where you aren't have the same limitation that the student funds has. And mm-hmm. some of our listeners will uh, be uh, imagining projects. And I know we do get callers from time to time and say, well, what kind of return should I expect by, you know, doing this or, or uh, you know, offering to someone? Sure. And it, the, the spectrum is from, you know, very safe, low return to very risky, high return and the whole, uh, you know, range in between. Sure. And whatever you project is never going to be what happens. And you just hope that whatever you project, it ends up being higher than that so that you know, everybody's happy at the end of the project. Well, and that's if you're a conservative, uh, responsible uh, developer or syndic- syndicator. The term syndicator, we mean to be someone who is going to develop, buy or, de- buy or develop something and uh, wants to syndicate their equity so that they get investors, really, so that other people's money to mm-hmm. spread out the risk of their own risk. Yeah. Well, on the point of being conservative, one of the things that I found somewhat humorous was um, – in grading something for the class, uh, a bunch of students used the word conservative to describe their underwriting of a case that I had given them. And I always laugh when I see that because if anybody underwriting a deal is really being conservative, it, mean there's, it means there's a 0% chance the deal happens. <laughs> so, Because uh, if you're underwriting in a conservative way, it means you're not going to be able to pay the price that the seller probably wants or that somebody who's a little bit more aggressive in the market is going to offer. So it's funny seeing that word in there. And ideally, you do want to be conservative, but you want to be conservative in a way that actually gives you the opportunity to still get a deal done. 
Well, I think that was a very astute observation and, 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 and something I learned a long time ago, being a real estate lawyer for now almost 40, over 40 years, um, representing a lot of developers. I've described developers are like politicians. So, so in this respect, some of us, to hear this, yeah. well, so, some of us are, you know, we always use the, uh, the metaphor or the uh, analogy that it's the glass half empty or half full. So if you're an optimist, it's half full, the same amount of water in the glass. If you're a pessimist, it's half empty, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, or if you're, you know, risk averse. Uh, developers and politicians, the glass is always full and overflowing, and yeah, there might not even be say. a drop of water in the glass. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they, they see, have, a, have to have a vision because the guts that yeah. it takes to run for office, the guts, guts it takes to develop something out of nothing is, uh, is tremendous. And, and the, even more so for developers because a politician decides that, or a, a candidate for elective office decides that he or she wants to run and then knows within max two years whether or not they've won the office, whereas a developer might not know for five, ten years whether their their idea for a development is actually going to make money. Right. And it, it, it's incre- that's why it's a very interesting and very entrepreneurial business. And like you said, you have to have, you have to be a total optimist, and you have to believe that the future is going to be much better than it is today. You have right. to. You have to. And if you don't, then as you said, nothing gets built, nothing gets bought. Right. Nothing You're gets in the wrong done. business. You're in the wrong business. So speaking about being in the right business, um, and let me just, uh, we have time to give one more uh, identification or welcome before we take our half hour break. I just want to welcome any new listeners. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane, commercial real estate lawyer by day and teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School by night. And our guest and soon to be host, Zach Shine. Berg's the managing director of Wind Raven, a privately held real estate investment firm. So please, if you want to join our conversation or ask a question, feel free to call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And on Good Friday, March 30th, we're here live in the studio. So if you call at 1-844-942-7866, we can address your questions directly. Uh, So, Zach, what are some of the projects that you're working on um, that will either be conservative or, or not, either stabilized or, or, or projected development projects? Sure. So uh, when, I st- when I decided that I was going to um, go out on my own, I did what I told the students to do, which is come up with an investment thesis based on demographic trends and uh, likelihood of getting deals done and the ability to capitalize deals. And I came up with an investment thesis, and I ran down a number of deals and got pretty close on executing a few of them, none of which happened in the way that I thought they were going to, but it was still a good way to start, I think. And it's been a good experience. But in the interim, while I was doing that, all the calls that I would get and conversations I would have about potential deals that I could do were ones that had nothing to do with my investment thesis. Because my historically, most of the projects that I focused on were development of uh, luxury hotels and residential. So the calls that I would get from former people I worked with or partners or general contractors or architects about, hey, this deal is out there, what do you think, would be all about the things that I used to do. And I, I, and I enjoyed doing that. I mean, I just thought when I created this thesis, which was similar to the students, what they did in Michigan, which was value-add office and, and multifamily in uh, secondary and tertiary cities, I think it's a good thesis. It's just I don't I have a much better argument to do development of condos, residential, and uh, and hotels because of my all of my experience than the thesis that I come up with. So most of what I'm focused on now is development projects that's multifamily or condo or hospitality, and I'm focused mostly on the markets that I know, which are the New York area. I'd say drawing a large circle around the New York area because right now New York City is nearly impossible to get any type of deals done just simply because of pricing and seller expectations on pricing. South Florida, um, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and uh, Los Angeles. That's a market that you know from your former association. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the three markets. And then random things come up all the time. I mean, I'm looking at a deal to build industrial in the middle of Iowa right now, which it's just a good lesson in uh, networking in this business is really, really important. And I, I met someone when I was, I went to the Iowa caucuses in 2016 just for fun. And I met some people out there who have become fr- genuine friends at this point, and they were looking for some help on a real estate development project. And I looked at it, and it was pretty interesting. And so now we're in contract to buy a piece of land out there and hopefully develop a, a commerce park there. Which, well, you know, that, that's that's an interesting experience, which I, I'd like to just dig, dig into a little because as you're talking about that, one of the things that that I've learned representing clients as well as in my own uh, account in real estate over the last uh, many years, is that 
no being able to see and touch knowing your local market or knowing the market that you're going to develop or own in is really important it's not necessarily essential but it's it's really valuable yep. and if you are going to go outside an area that you know having a local partner mm-hmm is often crucial. And that's exactly, it seems to me, what, what's happened to you in Iowa, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think you would have, or tell me, would you have just gone and said, you know what, I think that Des Moines is a great city. I read a lot about it. I'm going to go buy a property out there. Yeah. Well, so I wouldn't have, but to just <laughs> to just pick up on that, the city of Des Moines has put a huge amount of money into redeveloping the city. And it's very, very different than it was about five or 10 years ago. And there are a lot of um, millennials, younger people, who are moving there now, and it has become a very, not that it wasn't before, but it has really been redeveloped in a way that has attracted a good amount of population. I think that it is the largest growing city in the Midwest. Well, it's funny that we we picked that, and after the break, we're going to talk, I know you've got a lot of experience and analysis on a lot of the major cities around the country, what are the hub cities, what's going on, and I think that's going to be, we will talk a little bit more about Des Moines and some others, but I think the the, the point was, if you didn't know Des Moines personally and just mm-hmm. read about it, it would be very risky because you don't know, one doesn't know what block by block, sure. what are the good blocks, what are the bad blocks, what are, you know, so if you didn't have a local partner. No, there's no way. Uh, yeah. So uh, just as a caution to our, our listeners, you can say, boy, Austin's a great area, you know, whatever. Um, but be very cautious about investing or building or buying in a place where you know nothing about it. Yeah, uh, no, it's true. And then I have, I mean, I'm located in New York, but I also, I, any deal that I would do in South Florida would be with two partners that are physically located there. And any deal that I would do in Los Angeles or in Southern California would, would, would be with a partner who is also physically located there, all of whom I've known for a very long time. Yeah. And some of my, my longtime listeners will, will may remember that I had a business in China for a couple of years in 2006 and 2007 and would not have done anything there without serious local partners, Chinese partners who were politically involved and knew the city specific for mm-hmm. one city and then another. So and that's that's even a more extreme example of sure. not just deciding, wow, this sounds great. I'm going to go do it. Yeah, foreign markets are even more difficult than local ones, than yeah, national yeah. ones. And uh, like, what was the old movie, uh, uh, Dog Day Afternoon or something, where one of the guys says, well, maybe you should go to a foreign country like Wyoming. <laughs> it's like just, you know, some, some of our, uh, you know, even, even around the United States, they're foreign in the sense of, of, of how well somebody knows, uh, knows about it. Um, we're going to take a uh, very short break. Uh, so listeners, please stay with us um, while we uh, take our half hour break. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with our new host, uh, Zach Scheinberg, the managing director of Wind Wind Raven, a privately held real estate investment uh, firm. We're going to talk about the EB-5 program, which has been very much in the news uh, in the last several months, and uh, quite another number of other things. So please stay with us, and if you want to join our conversation uh, during the break, Call us at 1-844-942-7866. That's 1-844-WHARTON. And we'll be right back. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 111. Here again is Bob Lane. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for staying with us. For those who have been listening since the start of the hour, and welcome to any new listeners who have just tuned in. As you've been warned, I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm a real estate lawyer, uh, commercial real estate lawyer, as a partner at the law firm of Stevens and Lee, based here in Philadelphia, practicing all over the country by day. And my night job is a adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Zach Scheinberg, who is soon to become a new host for uh, our Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM. We're going to just remind our listeners a little bit about you, Zach, but we're going to move on to other topics. Uh, Zach is the managing partner of Wind Raven, a privately held real estate investment and development company based in New York, but developing all over the country. And we've been talking a little bit about the why and wherefore, where he looks to invest. Uh, But uh, Zach is a uh, a former undergraduate and MBA from here at the Wharton School, and also a uh, graduate of law school, uh, graduate of law school, and practicing lawyer, and brings an enormous wealth of uh, academic and and 
practicing practical experience to, and most importantly, was my teaching assistant many, many years ago at uh, the course I teach here at the Wharton School. So anyway, uh, if, you, if you're listening on Friday, March 30th, we're live in the studio. So again, happy Good Friday and happy Passover. Uh, but feel free to join our conversation by calling one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or email your questions at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Zach, uh, we were talking about some of the projects that the uh, Michigan the Ross Fund, the student fund, which is fascinating, was handling, and that they're more more quote conservative. Although we talked to drill down a little bit what conservative means in real estate, um, and we were starting to talk about some of the projects that you've worked on, um, and then I really want to talk about how some of the financing uh, sources out there like EB-5 and others have been or could be helpful. Um, so one of the things that I know uh, about EB-5, so let, let me just tell our listeners what we're talking about. This is uh, in the immigra- federal immigration uh, statute to uh, encourage foreign investment in real estate. The EB-5 program, which is a federal law, uh, says that if one invests a million dollars and in something that's going to produce 10 jobs, they can get preferential treatment for visas. It's very po- uh, prevalent for, for Chinese investors and other, other countries. And in other parts of the country, some parts of the country which are impacted, that million dollars can be reduced to 500000 But it's got to generate permanent, quote, permanent jobs, not temporary construction jobs. So it doesn't really work for just building a house or building a, an office building, but it does for things like hotels. And that's something that you've been very experienced in yep. developing. Yeah, so when I was uh, at Whitcoff, we, I would say somewhat early on compared to a lot of the rest of the market, we learned about the EB-5 program um, from a, just kind of from a social lunch that we were at. And so I spent some time learning about it, and it turned out that it seemed like it would be a good program to explore for some of our uh, hotel developments that we were doing at the time. And uh, the interesting thing about the program is that the um, it's not strictly so when when a lender is lending money, a lender is looking to get return on that um, on that loan, i.e. the interest. But for this, the the lenders, which are effectively foreign nationals who are looking to get uh, temporary and then permanent a permanent green card in the United States, are not so much looking for return. Their goal is to get a green card. In order for them to get a green card, they need to, as you mentioned, uh, invest either a million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars, depending on where the project is located, into a project that creates ten jobs, and though that has to be documented and proven to the U.S. government. And the way that it's done most of the time is through some kind of econometric study that an economist does that shows at the end of a project that the project actually created that number of jobs. And then if it does, the foreign national who is part of this program and has applied for uh, the permanent green card can then get. The permanent green card, um, and then in an, in the event that the project does work out, uh, the investor will get their money back and some nominal return. So, ori- I was going to say so originally when the pro- the pro- in the early years of the project, and there, are, I would say two phases of early years of the project or uh, the program. The program was first started in the early '90s, and it wasn't really popularized probably until 2007, eight, or 2008, 2009, when um, developers were having a problem finding financing for projects. So some stumbled onto it and figured out that this is an interesting way to get financing for a project, especially a development deal, construction fi- construction financing, because construction creates a lot of jobs. And when you're when you're figuring out what the job count is on a deal, using an eco- econometric study versus just coming to the site and counting people on a regular basis, these projects would create a lot of jobs. So it gave the investors the ability to create the ten jobs for their investment. Um, so developers realized that this was a good way to do it, and we found out about the project or learned about the project probably in 2011, realized it would work for a number of the deals that we were doing, we at the time when I was at Wickoff. And uh, I think since then, Wickoff has done, when I was there, I was involved in most of this, but I think something close to $750 million to $800 million of EB-5 loans for deals. Yeah, that's closing in on a, on a trillion, on a, on a billion now. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And it was a great program as a way to get an alternative, uh, to get alternative financing in challenging markets. But it, as the markets improved and construction financing was available, the reason that this program still stood, still was attractive, was because the rate that you were paying on the money was very low. You were basically paying a little bit more than whatever your senior construction loan was. Uh, they would take you up to a much higher dollar in your capital stack or percentage of your total capital which means that you as a developer were oftentimes able to do the deal yourself without a limited partner, which just pushed your returns through the roof. Right. 
So, and, and one of the reasons it survived um, our new tax changes and anything is because obviously our president in the real estate is a, in the real estate industry happens to be a fan of it. His family. So, uh, we'll 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 see what happens though uh, in, in in the long run. Uh, we, we, we could talk a little bit more about that. We may have questions. I know one of the things we want to talk about is what's going on in different cities. And to spark that off, we have a caller, uh, Kyle from Washington D.C. I think you have a question about the the real estate market in your city. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Thank you. Uh, Zach, I had a question for you. You know, I, I kind of wanted to know your input or your assessment on the, the Washington, D.C., specifically Northern Virginia market. Um, you know, Loudoun County, Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C., uh, currently takes about seven, receives 70% of the world's Internet traffic on a daily basis. There's 75 data centers um, and over 10 million square feet of active data centers in Loudoun County alone. So I was curious as your, you know, your assessment of that region and, and its current explosion of, uh, you know, the tech presence in the area. And it's one of the top contenders for HQ, for Amazon's HQ2 as well. So I think that most areas would consider themselves, if they're still in the running, the top contender for Amazon HQ2. But in any case, HQ2, no matter where it goes, is going to be a major game changer for whatever place it, it ends up being located. For me, just on that, before we get to the, uh, the question, um, it's been interesting seeing um, what the cities have been offering to Amazon to lure Amazon to their city. I mean, some have said, here's what we have to offer. We're not giving you any incentives. And some have said, we're going to kind of sell the entire farm in order to get you there. Well, you know, I, I want to actually talk a good bit about that. Yeah. That's an excellent topic, which I didn't think of. So let, but let, let's actually address uh, Kyle's sure. question quickly so we could let him go. And then I really I think we could spend some more time on, on the uh, Amazon HQ thing. I think that's a fascinating subject. Sure. So Kyle, is your question specifically just generally uh, thoughts on the Northern Virginia market? Yeah. Yep. Sure. So I think, I mean, I, I lived in D.C. for a couple of summers. Uh, sorry, one summer and then for a few months after after college. So I, I have a little experience there, not not a ton, but my sense of the the DC market and the surrounding suburbs is that it's always going to be a strong market for real estate investing, um, which is going to be reflected in sales prices and cap rates. But I always think it's going to be less risky than other places because you have a permanent government that seems to always be expanding in Washington, DC. And as a result of that, there'll always be a need for space. And then when you have a government that's expanding and additional agencies taking up more space, that means you need more people to work there, which means you need more housing, um, more other companies to come in order to service the people who live there. So I think the economy will always be strong. I think the big issue is in looking at a deal, um, are you getting uh, good risk-adjusted returns um, on a particular property? Because everybody, you know, most people know that the strength of the Washington, D.C. market and the dynamics of it so a lot of people look at it and they want to spend money on deals there, and that obviously pushes pricing up and pushes returns down. And one of the things, Kyle, that uh, we try hard to do is, is to let you know, let our listeners know when it's something that we're really uh, knowledge about and when it's not. And mm -hmm. I can just tell that Zach and I are not into the uh, the weeds, so to speak, on Loudoun County specifically. Sure. Uh, and we might have been. So it's a fair question. And thank you so much for, uh, for calling and for your question. Uh, we, we have a... Uh, Similar kind of question um, from our next caller, Mark, in upstate New York, who has a question about investment in New York properties. Uh, Mark, Mark, tell us a little bit more. Are you talking about New York City? Are you talking about New York as a state? Because I think, uh, obviously, location, location, location uh, is, is, is key. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Thank you. Good afternoon. My question is this. Uh, you mentioned that it's very difficult to get transactions done in New York City. It's just high rents, uh, very congested, et cetera. And I, I'm just curious, why don't, um, and, and again, just keeping into account location is very important, obviously, but it would seem to me if you can get uh, a lower basis for rent, a lower cost of living, uh, a good source of uh, uh, people to work, good qualified people, such as Buffalo as an example, we're all in New York, we all follow the same laws and, and rules and things of that sort. And I'm just curious, when it's so congested and so hard to get transactions done in a larger city, uh, why don't people do investments in smaller cities uh, in the same state or just different areas? Uh, it would make sense for me to consider that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so my first, the first thing I thought of when you asked the question was liquidity. Um, so it's more attractive to investors when they're looking at deals if they know that there's a very healthy market with a lot of potential buyers um, that they could eventually sell the asset to 
uh, anything that they bought. So obviously, New York City is a, is a place that lots of investors um, live and work and want to be. Foreign investors look at the city, they view it as a safe place to invest uh, because there's a huge amount of demand for people who want to live there and locate their office there. Um, and also because there's a very liquid, very efficient market when people are going to sell assets. So I think that's one reason. And I think the second reason is really just the supply and demand um, dynamics of any city in any particular uh, in any particular market. Um, if if there is more demand to live wor- and work in New York City, locate a company there, um, and there are more people there, so there are more service providers that need to be located there, it's going to be more attractive for people who are looking to buy property there because they know that there's going to be a market. So if the markets were perfectly efficient, then you're right, it would not matter because if all information was taken into account, you would get better risk-adjusted return, or you would get better returns in a place like Buffalo or Rochester or somewhere in upstate New York that would adequately reflect the different risk of investing in New York versus investing in Buffalo. The problem is that that markets, to some extent, especially outside of major cities, are not quite that efficient. And as a result, um, and I think as you alluded to, I think that there is a good opportunity to make money um, and do well in cities outside of the major gateway cities. Another aspect, uh, Mark, and thank you so much for your call. It's uh, sparked, uh, obviously, a, a very good good response, um, is that there are a lot of developers out there, and, and the, the range of real estate uh, investors, developers, builders, you know, people in, in the industry or, or different sectors uh, is like any other human endeavor. So you have people who will look for, okay, where is it easiest? Where's the, the, the market entry the easiest? Um, and, and that's what, where they want to be and they want to move quickly. Others will say, you know what, the very fact that it's hard and the, and the barriers to entry are high means that I can do something that most of my competitors can't. Mm-hmm. So there's still people as we, who are absolutely running into New York City. Uh, they have to have a lot of uh, bandwidth. They have to have a lot of resources. Uh, but they figure they can, because of that, those resources, they can probably achieve something that uh, a lot of their competition can't. What, what, I mean, Zach, is that? I mean, you've you've started recently on mm-hmm. your own, so you're not going to be competing with the major real estate investment trusts and the major you know national uh, developers. So, uh, I mean, for Mark's. Uh, point of view, you sort of have to understand, and when I teach my course for future real estate uh, owners, investors, uh, you know, at the Wharton School, um, one of the things I really emphasize is have a realistic sense of what your strengths and weaknesses are. What are your resources? Mm-hmm. You know, don't be too conservative, and we talked a lot about what that means, but but don't be too aggressive. Don't, don't let your reach be uh, uh, too out of... Uh, the realm of reality and practicality, and obviously you have had a good sense, uh, Zach, as to your own uh, you know, resources because you're doing very well so far. Yeah, but maybe I'm being a little bit too conservative. But Mark, so I actually like upstate New York a lot um, for a variety of reasons and given what the dynamics are now. Um, but uh, to pick up on a, a couple of the points Bob made, I think it's harder to do deals outside of major cities because lenders aren't necessarily going to want to lend money there. They're less comfortable um, uh, real estate investors who would probably have to contribute money for any sizable deal don't know those markets as well. Um, and the reality is that the deals are just smaller. So it attracts fewer people who are interested in doing them because on a uh, nominal dollar basis, there are fewer dollars to make while the returns might be very, very good. There are a lot of people in the real estate business, and I'm sure, Bob, you've seen them over your career that you know want to have their name attached to a major, major deal. And those major deals happen in very, very large cities. But it doesn't mean there isn't value there. And the last deal, one of the deals I most recently was looking very closely at, was the redevelopment of a hotel in Lake George, um, because I think that that is a very good and undervalued market. Um, the deal didn't end up happening for a variety of reasons, but I think that there is value that you can find outside of New York City. And the question then becomes, since it was a development deal, can I effectively execute the project, given that I'm three hours away? Which was something that really factored into the deal not happening. Um, but maybe I could have, maybe I couldn't have, maybe I'm being too conservative. Well, you know, time will tell for, for all of that. But Mark, thank you for your call. And uh, I just want to remind our listeners, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane, our co-host, uh, soon-to-be host, Zach Scheinberg, managing partner, Wind Raven, is with us. And if you want to call us on March 30th, we're live in the studio at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. been teasing people about talking about hub cities and you know where, where you see things coming uh, next. Uh, 
one of the, you know, every sector in real estate is different. And uh, we've seen single family uh, overbuilding drag down the market back at the beginning of the Great Recession, back in 2007, 2008. Uh, we've seen back at various cycles, uh, the explosion of office buildings, the see-through buildings back in the 80s and, and around the, the internet bubble burst time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we've learned is that when when there's an economic downturn, the things that go uh, go first are those things with the shortest term leases. So hotels are one day leases, and then apartments are usually six months or a year leases, mm -hmm. and then you know office, industrial, et cetera, et cetera, to retail. Um, and then the, the reverse is the coming back, but that doesn't necessarily mean what's the hot sector for demographics. What 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 are you seeing, Zach, in terms of uh, you know, what, you know, is, is multifamily still as hot as it's, it seems to have been for the last several years? Yeah, so just to add to what you just said, what will be interesting, I'm going to find very interesting to see if and when the market turns based on what you just said about it's when, length it's of leases. It's never if. When it's got to turn. Turns, when the market turns, um, how will uh, co-living, or sorry, how will co-working spaces cope with that? Uh, because it's office, but it's office on much shorter lease terms. So if the market turns, will people who um, tend in a WeWork, let's say, because they're doing a startup, maybe they have funding, maybe they don't, will they say to themselves, you know what, I don't actually need to be in an office here, I can just do this same thing from my couch, or I'm going to try to squeeze into an office somewhere else, or I'm going to try to work in the office of my investor. So the principle that they have a short, that way I just articulated, yep. that shorter term leases are the ones to go down more quickly right. is what you're building on. But of course, and this is, we don't know. And and, don't what, know. and it's a whole whole new industry, relatively speaking, this uh, work share. Uh, on the other hand, it may be that as companies shrink and downsize and have struggle, they can't afford their, their space, yep. uh, that they'll look to the exactly. WeWorks and Ben's desk and those kind of, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I don't know. Yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to see. And I think um, WeWork's entire business model, not just them, the other companies that are in the space, this is something that they're going to have to deal with at some point. And their valuations are largely dependent on how people react to a downturn and whether or not they can continue to tenant the space up. So why why do you think that certain cities are uh, you know hotbeds for for startup and development? And this may build off of Kyle's question about yep. uh, Loudoun County, but we here in Philadelphia we're also one of the ten finalists. I mean, they're you know for for Amazon. Let's go back to that because I think that um, and, and I'm just going to give give it a one one experience or, or category of experiences. I represent a lot of companies over the over my time, uh, major public companies as well as uh, smaller companies who consider relocating their headquarters. Mm -hmm. And what we'll do often in my role as uh, their lawyer is frequently to uh, be considering, uh, you know, having, having comp uh, promoting competition between two or three states for a major employer, as well as two or three landlords, uh, you know, in that. So as a real estate lawyer, I, who works a lot with government entitlements and incentives and things like that, We'll look at, okay, uh, some company in this area could be in South Jersey, they could be southeastern Pennsylvania, they could be in Newcastle County, Delaware. So which, which state is going to really incentivize them to go there? Or the Empire State, New York uh, versus Connecticut or, or New England, or even down for, uh, you know, for a major industrial plant down in uh, Georgia, South Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a lot of incentives are being thrown at uh, Amazon, for example. What I have found, though, is that the ultimate decision is, is where the company wants to be for their employees, where the CEO can get to. Yep. Now, in Amazon's case, Jeff Bezos is all over the place, and it may not be his decision. But I mean, it may be his decision, but it may not be his convenience. Uh, but um, what, what's your take on that? I agree with you. I think that the company typically has... Uh, an idea in mind of where they want to go. And the factors that go into that, I mean, there are a large number of them, which is what does the CEO want to do? Uh, where are they currently located? For Amazon, what logistically makes sense? Um, Transportation, right. employees, et cetera. It's, uh, college institutions, uh, what does land cost? Uh, how much does it cost to develop a facility there? Because you know, there are different development costs and construction costs depending on where you're developing something. So I think all those factors go in, but I think that they have a general idea. I mean, I think when they went out to 200 and something or 200 and something um, cities and towns, I don't know if it was that Regions. high, but some large number, 
Well, they, they, they spread it out to the world, yeah. I mean, to the whole country, and then I think around 200 responded, and they windowed that down to some number, and then they've then there was the final 20. I think we're at 20 now, or did they knock it down to 10? I can't keep track. The last I saw, I think it was 20. 20, um, yeah. But yeah, my I, who knows? But my sense is that they're not considering 200-plus different locations. My sense is that they have a very small handful of places they want to go. They want to see what they can get in each place. And then if uh, the city that they uh, – my guess is that they do not pick the place that gives them the best deal. And I think that will show that they had an idea in their head beforehand about what where they wanted to go. Yeah. And where they ultimately do go, at least they will have gotten the most they could from them because they've got to compete with uh, – and nobody can take that for granted. Yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting. So where where do you think – forget Amazon specifically. Where 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 are the, the hot cities now? What do you, what do you think are uh, – you know, for you as a developer, yeah. you know, what, what – what, You've, you've mentioned Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? So um, I wouldn't, again, the, the markets that I'm focused mostly on are not driven by uh, where I think a lot of startups are going or the dynamics of um, the cities generally. It's more of what cities do I know that I think are growing, where I think um, there is room to um, execute development projects in a way that um, is potentially profitable. So, but I think, uh, but that aside, I think that um, various cities now are seeing how much startups and technology has done, have done for San Francisco, um, New York, you know, New York too, and various other cities. So I think that they realize that we should do something in order to attract these companies or people who are starting these companies here, because one of them, or more, more than one of them, may turn into a company that could employ a lot of people here, and it could really help revive or help better develop the city. Um, so and. Cities can't really give a lot in the way of monetary incentives to startups because unless they're actually giving them investment dollars, which they're not, um, they just can't give them monetary incentives. So it's what else can they actually give them that would want to make somebody locate somewhere to start a company? So I think what it is is, is there a walkable downtown? Is there a good amount of retail? What are the housing costs? And what kind of resources does the city have that can be provided to uh, potential startups? Do they have co-working space? Do they have an incubator? Do they have... Um, elders in the city who have been very successful in business there to mentor people who are there uh, and our students in school there where they can easily kind of recruit them to stay because they already have a relationship with the city and they like it. So I think those are the kind of things. Um, But certain cities that have been, I think, successful at this, I think Des Moines has been. Um, I think Columbus, Ohio uh, has been. Nashville, I think, has been. Miami, I think, is starting to do some of this. Um, So I think there are a bunch of cities that are trying to do it. But I think it's more of, again, getting back to the Amazon thing, where do people already want to locate? And if they already want to locate there, are these tools available that they can avail themselves of to help build their business? So I think it's more of, first, what are the few few places that I would like to be? And then can I execute the business or build a business that I want to build in this place? And if the answer is yes, and housing costs aren't unreasonable, I think that that's how people make decisions. I I think that's very insightful. and holistic way of looking at it. And I suspect that uh, Amazon is looking at it exactly that way from, from, from all we know. And I will say I have no, I do not represent Amazon and am not have no uh, uh, stake in the game here, uh, no horse in the race, as, as it were. I think Zach and I are both just uh, looking at this objectively. Where would you guess they're going to go? Philadelphia. I would guess Newark. <laughs> well, I'm in Philadelphia, so that was a totally <laughs> biased uh, Homer Homer projection. Uh, I, I couldn't even begin to guess, yeah. but uh, but you know we have our fingers crossed here. After all, the Eagles won the Super Bowl, right? That's true. So I'm not an Eagles fan. Here? Well, in any event, this is a great topic to have uh, ended our show on because we're coming down to our last few moments. I want to uh, thank our listeners for staying with us. Uh, I hope you had enjoyed the show as much as we did. Uh, I'm again Bob Lane, your host, uh, Zach Scheinberg, your soon-to-be new host. You've been listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. I want to thank our very uh, generous guest as well as uh, our producer, Patty, uh, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, who always makes us sound good, even better than we deserve. So please <laughs> join us again uh, next time, and uh, happy holidays to everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 